What is depression? And how do the interactions between our genes, our chemistry, and the environment around us affect our odds of developing and being treated for anxiety and depression? That's today's big question, and my guest is Srijan Sen. Srijan is the Francis and Kenneth Eisenberg Professor of Depression and Neurosciences at the University of Michigan and the director of the Francis and Kenneth Eisenberg and Family Depression Center. His research focuses on the interactions between genes and the environment and their effect on stress, anxiety, and depression. Now, look, before we get going, I want to make very clear, if it isn't clear already, we're going to be talking about stress and anxiety, depression, some suicide, and more today. It's a very important conversation, that's why we're doing it, and an important one to be had, but if any of this could be triggering to you in any way, please feel free to just skip over this one. Nothing in this conversation should be taken as medical advice. If a treatment or combination of treatments prescribed or recommended by your healthcare provider is working for you, that's great. Your personal experience with that treatment is much more relevant than anything in this conversation. If you're using a depression medication or other therapy and not getting relief from your depression symptoms, talk with your healthcare provider. And finally, if you are struggling and feeling distressed and that you might hurt yourself or if someone you love qualifies in any way here, you can text or call the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. That's 988 right now from your phone to get help. And you can even call and press three to speak to a counselor with The Trevor Project, the nonprofit who works uh, and provides wonderful support for LGBTQ folks. Okay, let's get to it. Why are we here? Look, even before COVID, uh, kids, teens, and adults were suffering increasing levels of depression and loneliness and anxiety and stress. The symptoms are fairly uh, common to folks who have them. The causes are, are far less so, which makes treating depression, as it were, uh, a bit like throwing uh, darts blindfolded at a moving dartboard. So you know the dartboard's there somewhere, but it's moving, and you don't know where, and you don't know why, and you don't know how that might change. You know darts stick to dartboards, but you're not sure where to throw it other than to throw it, and hope that this one sticks. You're welcome. There's more of my poor metaphors farther in the feed. Um, anyways, from genetics to the gut to brain chemistry to inflammation and innumerable possible environmental factors like, say, a pandemic or school shootings or a loved one passing or childhood abuse, whatever it might be, just lack of sleep can trigger depressive symptoms. Or not. I have suffered through it. Um, Srijan has suffered through it, and, and so many of you have too. So with the way the science is progressing rapidly, um, but in myriad ways, I thought it was time to dive in. So hopefully this is the first of many of these. Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett, and this is science for people who give a shit. In these weekly conversations, I take a deep dive with an incredible human like Srijan, who's working on the front lines of the future to build a radically better today and tomorrow for everyone. So I hope you enjoy uh, my conversation with Srijan Sen. Srijan, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming today. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So it's, well, we hope that these conversations are evergreen, but it's October 17th. What is, uh, are you in Michigan right now? What are we, uh, we got snow on the ground yet? What are we talking about? I, I am in Michigan. It's, it's, it's like the week gets changing. So no snow on the ground, but it definitely, okay. first time I wore like a sweater and, mm -hmm. and it, it's, it's, uh, starting to get chilly. Um, but the, it, it's a beautiful time. The leaves are changing and, you know, lots of football in the air. It's a big deal in, in Ann Arbor. Yeah. So yeah. 
uh, a good time to be in, in Michigan. I haven't spent too much time in, in Michigan. I spent some time in the lakes, but I went to school in, in uh, central New York to Colgate University. And uh, I'm in Virginia now, but I remember getting up there and um, I, I swam and played baseball. And so swimming, you had to you didn't get to leave very much because the season's so long. Everybody else goes on these little breaks and we just had to stay. And I remember sitting in the dining hall on like October 4th and watching the snow come down outside. And I was like, what have I done? Like, this is, an, <laughs> this is an enormous mistake. Like you said, it's so beautiful. And then it's so cold for so long. Yeah. I went to college at Cornell in, in Ithaca, New oh, York. Yeah. And I remember I did my um, visit in, in August and it mm-hmm. was a beautiful It's day. the most beautiful place in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And then I don't think I saw the sun for, for four mm-hmm. years. I remember seeing high school students come on the tour, like you said, in like August, September, and you're like, oh, they're all coming. Like, look at this place. And right, then you see right. ones who are actually doing an outside tour in January, and you're like, what are you doing here? Run for your lives. <laughs> yes, yes, here. yeah. We do, uh, you know, interview new uh, for graduate students, and mm-hmm. it tends to be in, in February, and, and wow. it's the worst time if, if those interviews were, so were self-defeating. in August. Or, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. It, it's the, the, the a bad academic uh, schedule, but... But no, it's it's a it's a great place, a great town. Awesome. Well, everybody loves fall. That's again another one of my character things. If you're not into fall, you're out of here. <laughs> so, okay. Srijan, like I said a little bit offline, we like to start with one important question. It sets the tone in that the the stakes of the situation, but also it's you know brings a little levity to it. Um, uh, and we usually get something fun from it. So, Srijan, why would you say you are vital to the survival? of the species. And again, I encourage you to be bold and honest. Wow. Yeah, that is a, that is quite a question. Um, mm-hmm. I think my initial reaction is I am not vital to the survival of the species and, and partially because of the resilience of the species that, that, mm-hmm. that no individual is, we've survived through, through a lot, um, mm-hmm. and can survive, uh, many, many things. Um, I think hopefully what I can contribute is, and, and is this is sort of, a improve our understanding and of how our mind thinks and how we approach things and, and be a part of advances in, in how that relates to, to when things go wrong and our mental health. And, and I think, I think we, we desperately need to, to advance. And I'm hopeful that in the next, you know, 10, 20 years that, that we will understand how we think and do things in a healthier way. And, and I hope I can be a part of that that improvement. So I think that's the main thing. I also cheer loudly at Michigan football games and I think influence the world in that way, but sure. Yeah. I mean, cause if you don't do it, I don't know if you're superstitious. I am both like the most evidence-based person, but also like clearly always lined my baseball cleats in the same direction, because if I didn't, then that's it. Yes. Yes. I, 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 yeah. Uh, I, I watched full baseball games and backwards through a mirror because mm-hmm. we hit a home run that way. And then that, and that's the way it works. Yes. That's, that's yeah. the way it works. So I'm the same as you in, in, <laughs> in evidence-based in, in most of life. And then, and then right. ridiculously not in, in, in some important ones. My poor wife. It's <laughs> funny you mentioned the resilience thing. I feel like I saw, I'm, I'm such a geek for just sort of general history, but sort of way back, you know, going early peoples and certain uh, continents and the ice ages and all things like that. And I remember seeing something recently where they were like, yeah, I think at one point we were down to like 2000 people like in one of the ice ages. And you're like, 
Can you imagine the pressure? Holy shit, man. Like, no, that's right. like a Battlestar Galactic episode. Like, just watching yeah. the body count. I've, I've, they probably had a little less self-awareness than we do now, but still, like, oh, my God. What a nightmare. Less, like, real-time body counts on, on Twitter. But Yeah, right, correct. I'm probably misnumbering it, but either way, like, not great. Like, in the odds yes. of us getting there, I mean, you know, it's, anyways. Yeah, no, thank you. Right, right. Talk about mental yeah, health. Yeah, still, we're at a good time. We have a lot more backups. and Could be great. We know how to wash our hands now. Everything is Everything is great. That was a key one, yeah. Yeah. So listen, here's, uh, like we talked about offline a little bit, I expect we're going to bang around a bit, but mental health in general is obviously, to use a ridiculous metaphor, very top of mind for everyone, whether they're personally suffering from poor mental health in some way, or a loved one is, or a physician is, or, or whatever it might be, or a child is. Um, and Part of that, I think, is probably because we're doing a better job recognizing it. Part of that is probably because of COVID and school shootings and phones or, or whatever it might be. But I want to just really get into this. And hopefully it's the first in sort of a, a series of these and, and you're already invited back. You're welcome. I want to dig into it because it's important to have these conversations to, so people understand that there's folks like you who are working to advance our understanding of the what and the why and then what we might be able to do about that. Every day, because I think that in itself is probably helpful to people to know that they're very much not alone, knowing that loneliness is such an issue here. So <laughs> I thought about this while I was walking in the recording room earlier to grossly uh, oversimplify depression, the brain and the gut for a moment, which is probably just a colossal mistake <laughs> in itself. Just to set the baseline, it seems like, and we can go anywhere from here, the, the cumulative science and the latest science seems to tell us that Depression, as it were, is probably an individually differentiated set of conditions or condition like cancer. I feel like I saw referenced a number of places mm -hmm. with hopefully some sort of repeatable, identifiable causes that help us maybe treat it in some way like we do a breast cancer or a blood cancer. However, imperfectly, but progressively more effectively. And that any combination of, and I'm going to leave things out here uh, and in no specific order, genetics, white matter, inflammation, the gut, and environmental factors may cause or trigger depression, again, as it were. Does that sum it up? Are we done here? Is that is that good? We're done. Oh, yeah. great. That's yeah. it. Okay, We're listen, well this is so great. All right, so tell me all the places I was wrong there and where you would like to sort of get started with it. I don't know if you want to start with sort of the science, yeah. like the base layer, like genes, or and work our way up to interventions and treatments, or or... Where what's the best pace for people who are listening go like, mm, I know people with depression. I would like to understand this better. Hopefully we can cover a lot of ground. I like the cancer analogy and I think there's others. I, I think it's important to understand that depression is a really complex disease that manifests differently in different people. And my hope is that 10 years from now, we don't talk about depression, but we we have, have made advances and are talking about 10, 20, 30 different things. There's generally 10 symptoms that we use to come up with a diagnosis of depression through the the DSM, which is sort of our psychiatric Bible. Could you describe those real quick? Sure. Low mood and and not having motivation, losing interest in, in things, having sleep problems, eating problems, low energy. Probably most um, concerning and, and most serious is is thoughts of death and and of of hurting yourself and suicide is the most mm -hmm. tragic consequence of 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 depression. I don't know if I got through all 10, but but it's not a magic sure. number. And, and right. there's lots of other things that some people have more irritability. Some people have more 
withdrawing. It, it can lead to, to increased use of substances. Mm-hmm. I think the the point I wanted to make on that is that there's an you know over a thousand combinations of symptoms that can get you a diagnosis of depression and. And your depression is probably very different from my depression, and mm-hmm. both in terms of how it how it manifests in us and and the causes. And we don't have the sort of toolkit to really differentiate at a level that that cancer has gotten to. I hope that eventually we do, and and can can really differentiate prostate cancer from breast cancer or or cancers due to specific genetic mutations, which seems so obvious now, right? Yes. That we can yeah. do that, of course. But right. depression is however many decades behind. It is. And I think the um, we're moving along that pathway and, and to the way that specific changes genetically in cancers meaningfully predict what treatment would work best. Hopefully, hopefully we can get there and, and really be able to differentiate different types of depression. I do think, and, and this is going in a different direction, another place the cancer analogy is useful is that in cancer there has been real progress that, that that you know the chances of you dying of cancer for most of the major cancers is is less now than it was at the turn of the century and sure. even less to back to 1990 and 1980 um and and we have made major advances in in our molecular and genetic understanding of what happens in tumors to to create malignant cells and how that uh, spreads around the body and and advances in in immunotherapy and new chemotherapies. From a public health perspective, the major driver of the decrease in in cancer mortality has been much more in the prevention realm. Has been you know understanding and getting people to stop smoking and sure. reducing environmental toxins and you know sun exposure in different ways. Depression, we don't know nearly as much about the molecular changes in the development of new treatments, we're, we're far behind cancer. But we do know a lot of the primary upstream driving factors in a way that that's kind of analogous to, to smoking, how social connection triggers depression, not getting enough sleep and exercise and, and work and, and family interactions. And so those are really important targets for um, for improving our mental health. And, and I think places where we can make progress in the near term in a similar way that that you know that we've made in cancer with um, with smoking cessation. Well, let's let's talk for a moment there about sort of environmental factors, right? Like you said, we have made so much progress because we finally conducted this very kitchen sink approach, as I like to call it, of of taking on lung cancer, which was primarily uh, smoking and, and other environmental reasons, of course, and that included lawsuits and marketing and regulation and social pressure and and uh, all these different things, right? Um, and we haven't eliminated it, um, but it is down drastically. In fact, it's so far down, there was a headline this week that said that one piece of the puzzle was raising taxes on them. And because smoking has been reduced so much, those taxes, which to, for the past couple of decades have gone to a variety of children's programs, that funding is now reduced because there's so few, the volume of, of taxes collected off them is is down. So it's a real like <laughs> pros a, and cons yeah. situation. It did what it was supposed to do, but now it's like, oh, right. well, shit, now we got to find the money somewhere else, right? It's hurting the children. Right. Slightly analogous to a gas tax and 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 how EVs aren't paying that. And so obviously it's great to, to tax it. So gas isn't quite so cheap, but as we have to pay for roads somehow. Um, yeah. 
pros and cons. It's complicated, like everything here. But let's talk about those environmental factors, because obviously cancer in itself is, is, is very complicated. To get into it mildly, my one real bout with it, which I didn't really realize until uh, with, with, well, with cancer and depression was one of my best friends died 14 years ago from cancer very, very suddenly at 29. And I did not handle it well. Um, it was a lot of, lot of drinking, a lot of depressive love, just crying for no reason, very low, all these different things. It, it definitely lasted a couple years. It was not great. Never really got real help for it. Just progressively dealt with it. But cancer almost cheats in some cancers, right? It's pretty easy to do a scan and see a large enough tumor and go, well, there it is. Let's make sure it hasn't spread anywhere else, right? Blood cancers are more complicated, even though we've got some tests for that. And now there's much more early testing that's uh, semi-controversial, obviously. There's things like the BRCA gene, which has become uh, very important, but also sort of semi-controversial. The point is, like, th these indicators are much more, uh, seems like standardized and robust, but often easier as opposed to some of the environmental factors for depression, but at the same time, some of your work seems to have really, especially with um, medical students, your longitudinal study, seems to have really identified, you were hinting at, both sleep and lack of social connection, um, which, again, you don't see on an MRI, but even sleep, like, you can count that. So I wonder if you can get into those a little bit, and then maybe we'll work back down into whether you are genetically more likely to be predisposed to depression. Yeah, no, and I'm sorry you went through that, and it's it's difficult, and it, it's it's far too common, and, and often you know a, a trigger of, of a of a loved one going through something, and there's different triggers, but it manifests, and and recognizing it and getting help and dealing with it in healthy ways is hopefully becomes more norm and 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 easier to do. Uh, thank you for mentioning our work, and and it it's part of a a, a really a, a broad, hopefully emerging area of, of of looking at these factors and, and some people have been looking at it for for a while a, a lot of the work I think is getting to backing up common wisdom that that probably our, our parents told us but I'm hopeful that we can quantify it in a way that's helpful so maybe it's worth talking a little bit about that study if, if, yeah, if that's a good it. direction to go 100% we've been studying this this group of, of training physicians um, people transitioning from medical school to to residency for, for the past, you know, 15, 16 years now, I looked at about 26,000 of them over the years of, of folks who are, when we first enroll them, are relatively healthy, you know, 3% of them are depressed or so. And then in July each year, they start working really long hours, not getting enough sleep, dealing with life and death situations in, as they're working as residents in the hospital. And, and a high number of them, about half of them, um, end up getting depressed during that first year of training under the sort of stressful conditions. And, and so we've used the, that model in a, in, a, in a bunch of different ways, probably most directly trying to understand what the causes of depression are in that group and work with, with them, with, with hospitals, with accrediting agencies to try to uh, counter the, the, um, the, the negative stressors and, and reduce the depression and, and, and things that go along with it. Um, but we've also used it to try to understand it's a, it's a relatively unusual group. They're healthy when we first see them and we mm -hmm. can follow them as they in, encounter the stress um, and, and, and many of them get depressed. Most times, you know, in life, we can't predict when, when stress is going to hit when. Sure. But you know, uh, the you know, first before. day of programs, like it, it is right. such a, a the, the very brief segue. One of my best friends is a captain of a submarine and, um, 
they a few years ago had some sleep scientists come on board because That's they were running cool shifts. Best um, yeah, it, uh, he, he thinks he's cooler than he is. Let's let's take it easy. It's so cool. Um, I have a podcast. They had some sleep scientists come on board because they're they were running what were the shifts? Maybe they were six hour shifts or something like that. Anyways, after a few days yeah. of being out with them, the sleep scientists were like, "Holy shit, this is really bad. Like you guys are yes. effectively drunk the entire time. Like everyone's depressed. <laughs> like it's not it's not great." I bring that up because the Navy actually made a structural decision to move them to, I think, and he's going to kill me, I think eight-hour shifts, three eight-hour shifts, and how much that actually helped. So as much as you've got this incredible control group of 3% kind of depressed mirrors the population, you know when they're about to go into the shit. It's a huge variety of of people across so many different institutions. Um, But at the same time, again, without jumping over the research itself, I wonder how much structural change can be had to the residency system um, itself from understanding the lack of social connection, the sleep stuff and all that. So how do you tie that together? Right. I hope there's progress to be made. And I I think both in this group and then in other, certainly in, in, in people in, in submarines, in a lot of factory shift work and, and air traffic controllers and other things. And it's surprising to me. I, I didn't realize how, how much that one component, the shift work, the timing of when you work affects mood, depression, and, and even physical health in pretty profound ways. Um, you know how important the the our circadian rhythms are, and and doing things at the same time every day, and and how much that's that's set by when the sun's coming out and going down, and how much light we're getting. It really really does affect us, and and I think in we're just at the beginning of it in, in medicine. You know, uh, I, I don't know if this is true, but I saw. Something that our uh, surgeries start ridiculously early in the morning in most hospitals. What what I had read from uh, this history of medicine article is it was it's set by um, maximizing the number of hours in the operating theater in Germany in in the eighteen fifties and sixties before electricity was available. Sure. And we still haven't really adjusted things. Great um, work. Uh, even though you know we have electricity. We have Correct. Yes, medicine tends to be pretty traditional and and stuck in in. In, in ways, but that that has huge effects in in how how um, we still you know do surgeries early in the morning, and that for many people that doesn't fit their circadian rhythms, both for for surgeons and and hospital staff and for patients. Uh, and we shift things in in non biological or or biological friendly ways. Before people used to work you know 36, 48 hours in a row, which is which is you know, bad for them and bad for their attention and, sure. and bad for patients. We're doing less of that, but still shifting in, in kind of haphazard ways. And, and there's ways our body, similar to what the, you know, your friend experienced in the submarines, that, that shifting forward is often healthier and easier if you're changing from days to nights and shifting backwards. And the length of shift really matters in how you handle it. And then where you handle the shift and when you get light after your shift or, you know, before the new shift makes a difference. So really having that, the real advances in, in circadian systems and understanding inform how, how we organize, how we, we staff submarines and, and factories, but also hospitals and, and, and how we organize those. I think even though they seem like relatively minor things can have major effects in both our mental health, the mental health of, of doctors in, in, in the work that I'm doing, um, but also you know, the productivity and how that affects the work that they do. Um, little things um, 
and we're talking about the circadian work now, but I think this this applies to a, a broader range of things can make pretty big differences if we do it correctly. And, and if we do it wrong, it can have, it, it can really do damage. It seems to make so much sense. Our parents have been yelling at us to get enough sleep forever. It's just you're, you are further quantifying it and, and quantifying the, 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 the myriad internal and external impacts of that, right? We, we live in relationship to one another, especially uh, physicians, right? And or nurses yeah. and administrators, everyone, like that is the entire purpose. It's, it's about the, the relationship. Right. Um, and that is affected just like driving a submarine or flying a plane or working in a factory or being a new parent, right? So I want to talk, I want to get to physician mental health uh, and, 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 and again, nurses as well, because they're obviously such a vital, vital piece of the puzzle here. And we're so challenged the past few years, but putting a pin in that for a moment, I wonder if we can talk about the intersection of you've left medical school, this place where you were challenged and probably developed some great social bonds and you are thrust into residency. Again, you make your list and you have no idea what you're going to get and you go and you're going into this incredibly both stressful situation. We always say, like when my kids ask me, is the planet's melting and all this? And I'm going to say I had a podcast. You are going into, you're going to be a doctor or a nurse. You are, it is life or death, right? But you've lost all those social connections because one, you are not in person with them, kind of like we were in lockdowns, but also time is pretty zero sum. You're not standing around. You can't text with these people all day. Um, and the sleep. Tell me how we've been able to really understand and, and again, quantify what that loss of those social bonds means for the, like you said, half of folks who become depressed over time. It's a shock to the system in the way that you talked about really, uh, yeah, eloquently it, it, to get you know, removed from from whatever your social support system is, and and then moving moving to a new place and having to adjust all while being thrown into to ridiculous work hours and and life and life and death situations. So it it it, it is very common to lose social support in different domains of life. With that, it affects a, a lot of people uh, profoundly. And and when when bad things happen, an error or or a patient dies in the hospital or family problems that that your normal social net that was there before isn't isn't there anymore. So I think this is again not unique to doctors and and off you know when any of us move or or sure. lose social support it, it it can be it can be a profound both trigger for problems or or when something else happens not realizing that we don't have that that support or that net that was there before can really make things snowball and and make things worse. We often hear from our young physicians about their parent gets sick or their sister's getting married and they miss that because of their work. And that that sometimes is a is a trigger for starting a depressive or anxious episode. And and again, things can go downhill from there. But that social connection is really, really important. And often we don't realize how important it is until until it's gone. So th that's one of I, I think both from a societal level, institutional level, and individuals finding ways to build that, build the social connection, I, th I think is really important and really important from a public health perspective to improving uh, mental health and, and all the things that flow from it in different ways. One of the things our, our work has found in others is that the social connection, the the type of it that's important and how important it is is different for different people. And you know, for some people, having a, a large volume of social connections and is is the most important thing, and and really is is sort of the bedrock and the foundation for their mental health. For other people, 
they really do need alone time. And, and, and I think everyone needs some social connection, but the nature of it and the volume of it is different for different people. So broadly, I think identifying for each individual, both us as, as, as physicians and, and healthcare workers, but also for individuals themselves to try to understand what the most important things are for them. And then finding ways of prioritizing it is, is, I hope one of the ways we can really make progress in, in the next, you know, the next period of time and improving our mental health and wellness. Thank you for sharing all that. It seems one of my biggest issues is the folks from quote unquote hard science jumping on the quote unquote soft science and, and saying it doesn't matter as much. I'm like, well, look at where we are. And we had on uh, Mark Schultz recently, who's been running for a long time with uh, Dr. Robert Waldinger the longitudinal happiness study for yeah. hundred years or whatever, 80 right. something years. And right. it's complicated and only so measurable, but like you, um, they and their predecessors have used a huge variety of biological and chemical and environmental biomarkers as it were to really understand what provides for not just contentment, but a nourished, flourishing, happy life and mental health. And the number one thing, like the cheat code is, relationships. And like you said, some people like my wife, who is a butterfly, it's it's new friends every day, and also a bunch of great friends. And I've got, you know, my robot vacuum in the other room and, and this guy and and a few like wonderful friends who are ride or die. And I'm good. But whatever your preferred version, which can take a while to sort out, um, especially as you move through life. Obviously, COVID was was pretty hard, whether you were a very small child who who didn't get the initial social exposure that's so important or didn't get to go to preschool, which is unaffordable and impossible for a variety of reasons as it is. Kids are pulled out of school who maybe didn't have attention span issues as well, so they couldn't even handle the Zoom side of it. Middle schoolers and teenagers who were obviously ripped away from friends and missed homecomings and all these things that we've been promising them for for so long and day-to-day interactions. College students, I mean, I, I've got Wee Marius 10 feet that way and, and, and watching in person how that went down with folks was a fascinating and, and tough experiment. But at the same time, you know, we've seen youth mental health dropping before that. And it's been very easy and probably in some ways true to throw a lot of it at social media, obviously. But there are some folks who try to take an even further step back and go, this seems to pretty much line up when when phones just started coming out, period. And if you track that again, and again, it's not, it's very imperfect, but hanging out has gone down, driving licenses has gone down, which makes it much more difficult to hang out. Screen time has gone up. Kids ha- having sex uh, has gone down. Like all these different markers of, again, not to say our lifestyles were perfect before that by any stretch, but at the same time, these environmental factors, we've introduced things that have never been a part of who we are and how we interact with one another, knowing that relationships are the most important piece of the puzzle. Before we talk about genetics or white matter or any of that shit, what those do to affect them, it's fascinating and it seems so simple, but we seem to keep making it much more difficult for ourselves. It's interesting. Hey everyone, it's Quinn, your host and the founder of Important Not Important. I'd like to take a quick minute to tell you about the INI or any, whatever we're calling it these days, membership and community. It's a gathering place really for our most dedicated shit givers, a place to connect 
and learn from one another and to have access to me outside of the newsletter and this podcast. We started it last year and it's grown to hundreds of shit givers from all kinds from around the globe. I'm talking about teachers and investors, students, electricians, journalists, artists, scientists, and policymakers, and, and more. Members get exclusive access to our daily news homepage, which is very cool, and to much more top-of-mind weekly articles, research, and tools that you can use and to stay ahead of the game, member-sourced action steps, twice-monthly book and culture recommendations that have nothing to do with the end of the world, virtual events, and of course, the membership Slack channel. Look, so many people come to us asking, what can I do? And we think we do a pretty good job of answering that question and providing context for the answer. But the best answers and the best perspective really come from the community, a wide-ranging community. And we would love for you to be a part of it, to feel supported yourself, and to contribute to discussions and actions alike. And of course, by becoming a member, you're directly supporting our work here and ensuring that we get to keep doing it. So if you'd like to learn more, head to importantnotimportant.com. And if you're already a reader, you can just hit the upgrade button at the top. If you're not, go ahead and subscribe for free and you'll see the option to become a member at whatever level works best for you. And as always, you can always find the link to become a member right in your show notes. So thanks for listening. And as always, thanks for giving a shit. Back to the show. Yeah, yeah. That's no, not a question. A lot in there that... I don't know. It's just like I, I just there's a reason I keep coming back to all this, which is I know folks who are struggling with loneliness in a real way, young people and old people and and middle and new parents and 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 we just make it difficult. And texting is not right. the same thing. It's it's wonderful in some ways, right? I have friends yeah. I text during Liverpool games who live in Australia. I don't wouldn't otherwise see them, right? Yeah. But it's not the same thing. Yes. Yeah. No. No. I think the. I'm sorry. I was uh, distracted. I was wondering if you can text the the. If he gets to text on the submarine or not. He does not. It's ridiculous. It's First of all, it's still volunteer only, which is understandable because holy shit is a claustrophobic. I've gone out with them and I'm not claustrophobic. I'm still like, wow. Basically, they get like plain text emails when they surface. Who can know? So mm. no, it's a whole different thing. That's interesting to, anyway, yes, I've, yeah. I have, I, I want to study that too. The environment is so important and and it's changed in so many ways from, particularly with in, in the last 20 years. I think- one point that I think is important is to try to not, uh, and not, not that you were doing this, but to, to sort of oppose sort of biological explanations to environmental explanations. I think it's, I'd love to get to the place eventually when our biological sciences have gotten there that we can put them together. But the only way that, that uh, screen time is, is affecting our mental health is, is through changing our biology of course. in some way. No, not trying to short that more. It's just like, we're, we're like, we're taking the lowest hanging fruit, the things we do understand and making those more difficult before we even get to look at how they're reprogramming us. Right. 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 But yes, hopefully we can get to the point where we can understand how it is, whether it is reprogramming us and, and in right. what way. I hope there's pathways to get there, but it's clear. Yeah. The, the, the mental health of our, of adolescents, particularly adolescent girls, but, but everyone has, has been on a decline this, this, the last, the last 15, um, 20 years with anxiety, depression and suicidality and, and completed suicides in, in, in ways that are, they're really tragic and, and trying to 
I think you mentioned a lot of the leading candidates of, that are that are driving that. From my perspective, we still don't know what the answer is, and if there is really one driving thing, or or sure. it's a combination of these things. I am convinced, like you are, that social connection is a big part of it, and the decline in the magnitude of the decline of how much time kids are spending with other kids, and to a lesser extent, adults as well, in person interactions. The the amount of time on social media with phones, how that's playing a role. Also, this plays into to, um, sleep. The, you know, if you're spending three, four, five, six hours on your phone, that that tends to or it correlates and, and probably causes people staying up too late and not get not getting enough sleep. Which of these are the driving factors, or or there's ten other factors that we haven't discussed. But but trying to get there and then have markers where we can actually track whether biological or digital or some other markers to catch them early so so um, we can we can intervene at the earliest possible stage is important so uh, like like we've been sort of alluding to through the whole conversation I think you know the solutions to the the crisis that we're in is is going to be at, at multiple levels so at a high societal level and policy level of how to increase the interactions we have with policies around phone use and social media. I think school starts times is, is a big, big one that's also playing sure. a big role. Sure. How these are handled at schools and at the family unit levels are important. And then individuals in trying to prevent, like we've been talking about, we, we know a lot more about the things that can prevent mental health problems from starting. So so putting those in place, identifying people early and then and then getting them help. We haven't even talked about how hard it is to get in to see a psychiatrist or a therapist. And yeah. that's a, a mini crisis within the larger crisis that, that we have to deal with. But we need more work in identifying which of these factors that you talked about are the, the main drivers and how different individuals are, are, are affected by the, the drivers and then really work at all those different levels to eliminate or reduce those risks. Base level, time is, time is pretty zero sum. Right. And yeah. and look, everyone loves to sit on the toilet and, and look at the phone. Right. Whatever it is, that's a, that's a version of multitasking. That's probably not quite so quite so harmful. But at the same time, when it's not on the margins anymore, when it is significant chunks of our wake time or what is supposed to be our sleep time. Same with doctors. And I, th- I think I believe I saw one piece of the research was and this is reminded me so much of the first parenting advice I ever got, which is people are getting up earlier for residency, but they're still going to bed at the same time which is so logical, but a nightmare, which is the parenting advice I got was you don't get control what time you wake up, but you do get to control what time you go to bed. And that yes. is like, the I was like, oh my God, now I go to bed at about 7.45. It's fantastic. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, Jealous. I mean, it's an exaggeration, but it's, uh, it's yeah. the goal. It's the, it's the goal. Yes. Again, we're not talking about things on the margins anymore, however complicated and nuanced and individualized they meet, right? We're seeing these broader patterns of just how our lifestyles have changed so much that there has to be some sort of related cause in some way, but not everyone is affected. So let's take a little time and, and talk about, and obviously this is grossly oversimplified, but the genetic side of how you might be more preconditioned to experience depression if you are triggered by whatever variety of ways. And if we have time, which I know could be its own conversation, uh, the recent research, which I know has been piling up forever around serotonin and SSRIs and, and how those work, but maybe we don't know how and for some people and how that's both changed everything and nothing. But let's start with the genetic side, because again, 
not all of those medical students experienced depression. Uh, the number jumps, but not everyone. And not everyone suffered from lockdowns. Uh, many people did and many people didn't. Many students have fallen behind and many did not. Can we talk about that a little bit and what your sort of most recent understanding is of, of how that works? Yeah, there's a lot we still don't know. And one of the exciting things about being in this area is that we're, we're learning a lot and, and mm -hmm. our understanding of how this how all this stuff works is going to be really different in 10, 20 years. Does that excite you? You seem you seem pumped about that. I am. I am. That's why, you know, no one's like, we're not going to discover like a new chamber in the heart. Like we pretty yeah. much know how it works right. and like right. what it like like we have no idea how the brain works and and, right. and i think we have the tools to really um understand it much better so i i am i am pumped about about that and and the potential there i think genetics we you know maybe 30 years ago 20 years ago or thought that there might be a a gene for depression like mm -hmm. BRCA for breast cancer but it's turning out pretty clearly that that we do know that that there's a genetic component to depression that that if your parents are depressed, you're more likely to be depressed, and and that accounts for you know some a third of your your risk. But it's not one gene; it's spread across. You know, at the latest is you know there's at least 300 genes that play a role in depression wow. that we've you know as a field identified, and probably a thousand more with with really small effects. And if you sum them all up, it affects your your predisposition and your your risk for depression. But it's not any one thing. And right. so, as you mentioned in in our our study and others, that the people with we can now create these things called polygenic risk scores, sort of adding across your whole genome, and and you can get versions of these on you know twenty three andme and ancestry dot com and things on on your how predisposed you are for. You know, losing your hair or, or getting diabetes or a hundred things. But yeah. one of those things is, is your risk for, for depression, but these are all probabilistic. So you can have a high score and not get depressed. You can have a low score right. and get depressed, but, but it has, it has some predictive value there. One of the interesting things that, that we're starting to make progress in, I think in the next few years, we'll make even more is understanding how that, how the genetics is causing that. And it's not what we've done with um, social support, what we've alluded to a little bit is that most of these residents lose social support when they move and they start their new training, but not all of them do. And and how that affects people is different. That when people lose a lot of social support, people who have a high polygenic risk score for depression across this whole genome tend to do worse. They 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 are much more likely to get depressed than people with a low polygenic risk score. But we also found that in the situations where people didn't lose their social support or actually gained social support, those same people who had a high polygenic risk score did did better. They were less depressed and less anxious and, and generally thriving more than people who had a low polygenic risk score. So it seemed like something in this this specific genetic score or combination wasn't really a bad thing. It wasn't that these people are defective in some ways and were struggling. It was more of a sensitivity to the social environment. So sure. in good social environments, they actually thrived, but in, in poor environments, they, they, they struggled. And so maybe for these people, and it's still early days and, and I don't think genetics is the answer to this, but, but I think it highlights how for these people prioritizing social connection and environment is really important and, and probably uh, different people have different vulnerabilities. Some people are kind of steady and will be, you know, the same regardless. 
for some people, the social environment is is critical and prioritizing that is really important. For other people, getting to bed at, at 7.45 or 8 is really important. For others, it's, it's you know, getting in their, their run every day, but figuring out what your sensitivity is and ideally the biology underlying it and then prioritizing that I think is really important. Hopefully we'll have more more ways of helping people identify that in the days going forward. There's so much I want to talk about there from exercise. We all see the simplistic headlines of exercise is just as good as an SSRI. It's like, okay, let's be nuanced about it. Some people can't right. exercise in the in the way defined in the article or whatever it might be. You know, how many hundreds of millions of hourly workers do we have in this country have no control over their sleep schedule or their child care schedule or whatever it may be. Obviously, take all that with enormous, you know, salt mine. But let's go back for a minute to this polygenic score. Sort of when did that come about? Sort of how far along do you feel like we are in, you know, the easy, lazy, incorrect comparison is an allergy test. You lay there, they prick you a bunch of times, and the doctor comes in and says, looks at all of them and says, blueberries, horses, cats, dust, you know, and you go, oh, I should avoid dust, uh, but I'm fine on chocolate, right? Right. It's imperfect, but it has come a long way. Reflux, right? It's easy to do if you're suffering from it. They can either see you've got an ulcer or whatever it might be, or they can do an elimination diet and you add things back in and you might discover, oh, this 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 makes me trigger really quick. And you can understand that. And it seems like you're alluding to hopefully we can get to the point to understand when people are predisposed to really needing those in-person social connections that they can rely on and 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 or sleep things like that. But let's talk about that score for a moment. How did that come about? What is involved? And again, to everyone, like th- this is not a do not use it as a diagnosis in any way or anything mm-hmm. like that. But um, whether wherever it's available. But does that get better at yeah. some point? What's involved in getting better? What do you need? Um, and how much do you think that is a part of? what folks are dealing with. I have envy for other parts of medicine where they're it's like farther cheating. along in yeah. that. But, but yes, yeah. I don't think we're there yet. It's not not anywhere near like an allergy test. Right. It is just one tool that can be helpful. I think it's, it's and all this is complicated. So it's not just your genetic predisposition, but other things as well. We've, we found, and uh, we do a lot of work with, uh, with wearable stuff. And I think that's a, another part of maybe the path forward, but we, we give people sort of some of their data back about themselves. All these interns that we're studying where are wearing Fitbits and Apple watches and, and we're looking at relationships between both sleep and activity and heart rate and light exposure and, and mood to try to understand things better. And, and this, one of the things we're finding in trying to get the information back to the individuals is that the state that they're in affects how effective the information is. So if someone is sleeping poorly or, or, you know, sleeping six hours a night and, and, or five and not enough telling them that and saying like, you know, you've only slept five and a half hours a night the last week, usually sleep seven hours, try to get more sleep. They sleep a little bit more, but if they're sleeping seven hours a night, um, you tell them you're sleeping seven hours a night, good job, keep it up. They tend to sleep worse in the next like so in some ways getting and we don't know the exact mechanism if it's they mm. feel like they're guilty in some way or don't prioritize it and decide that like oh it's okay if i follow this twitter thread at at 11 p.m and get to sleep a little bit later right. or, or whatever it is let me see what the neo-nazis are up to tonight yes the same thing in, in other domains and in, in exercise and and 
mood, but the state that they're in affects how they, whether the intervention or the micro-intervention works or whether it's positive or negative. A tangent from your question, but it's not just, these are people, you know, the same person, the same genetics in September might respond positively to a sleep message, but negatively in, in January. So mm. it's important to get the right prevention, intervention, or treatment, whatever it is, to the right person at the right time. And figuring that out is 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 going to be a challenge, but I think where where the answer lies. So genetics is a one of these tools, but I think also people understanding themselves um, in in a more day to day basis is important. So, and I think wearables are one path to this, but not the only one. But trying to understand that each day I do when I do have dinner with my family, my mood is better that day and the next day or not, or the exact opposite, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. or when I do get to sleep at night, things get better. And if I do walk in the park and get light exposure, it helps me. It's impossible for any of us to do all the 30 things that our mother told us right. or you know our doctor tells us to Which do. Which can you provoke can't. anxiety on its own. It, exactly, and, 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 and it can be really counterproductive. But I think figuring out, I think we can and should feel empowered to figure out what the important things are what what the important thing is for me and and for you and 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 then trying to prioritizing that prioritize that as much as best possible and if it's not no one can go for a six mile run and then come back and cook a wonderful meal for the family and spend two hours and then right. get all their work done and then get to bed at eight o'clock and I've literally never done like half of those things in one day yes if the most important thing for you is to get to sleep early then deciding to not you know not have a leisurely dinner or not not yeah. not exercise is is probably the important so so i think figuring out that and a long-winded way of saying that social support and the genetics is a part of that but the genetics is not nearly advanced to be the the thing that can that should sure. drive that and and much more sort of being conscious about what what is important in your life and as much as you can getting data on that from and writing it down in, in, in ways can, can really help us figure out what to prioritize and to help stay healthy and, and, and get healthier again when, when we are in an episode. How much, and, and hopefully one of these leads to the other, but it's me, so doubtful. How interested in are you, and, and I sort of wrote a piece about this, about my conflicting feelings on it, but in sort of Apple's rolled out this whole new sort of mental health toolkit and not all of it's available yet, but I think the journaling part is not there yet, but at scale, suddenly at least 100 million people or so are able to track and are prompted on the daily to track their mood at any given moment and how they felt today and to program in sort of some pre-selected and then fill in your own. I'm feeling this way, irritable, happy, content, whatever it might be because of work, family, health, fitness, uh, you know, all those different things. In a world where, and, and we've worked on this quite a bit here, clinical trials are so expensive and difficult to run. And I know you've said you've done a lot of wearable stuff. Do you feel like that this can help us make some progress for on one front for someone to just understand themselves a little better and have a little more self-awareness for something to show you the math and say, hey, like you said, when you eat dinner with your family, you tend to rate a little higher, right? Or when you go for that run, it tends to be a little better. Like I know that works for me, but it took me 35 years to figure that out. And on a macro scale, how impactful do you feel like this might be knowing it started? A month ago. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really I'm heartened that they're doing it. Yeah, I'm 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 hopeful. I think it's it's uh it'll be really interesting to see and and we don't know uh, yeah. how it's going to affect people and 
I, I'm hopeful it'll be a good thing, but it could be a bad thing. So yeah, I, I think sure. I think it's it'll be really yeah. It's also the most powerful to, company that's ever existed doing it. Like pros and cons. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. And and the data sharing. I mean, I mean, I think a lot of the sort of domains we're talking about they are relatively benign, but certainly have some privacy concerns, and and other ones have even more. You know the location information, which your phone and your watch know where you are. And, and that's, you know, seems to be one of an important factor, you know, people who are home all day, again, it depends on the individual, but, but that can be a sign of, of worsening mental health or sure. where you're going. But also that's information that, that people are sensitive about and, and how to share that is a challenge. And so I know Apple thinks about that and hopefully is, is protecting our privacy and, you know, but sure. still, allowing, uh, you know, collecting and, and using this information. I think it will be important to, again, you know, I've harped on this, but but really work on this at the individual level. There's certainly some people where this data can be overwhelming and, as you alluded to, could provoke more anxiety that I only got seven hours and 29 minutes of sleep last night and and I'm supposed to get seven and a half hours and this is this is horrible and that can keep you up the next oh, yeah. night but for some people it can be empowering in 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 understanding every time I do interact with that person I'm anxious the next three days and and I'm in a horrible mood and maybe I should not interact with with him so much or or seeing that like really going for that run helps me and and on days that that I have a chance to, to run through the park, things things are better. So so I think the way Apple gets the data, and I haven't fully seen the final version back to the pe- people in, in ways, hopefully that they can really understand themselves in ways that they didn't before, will be one of the important steps and, and ways uh, that we can advance. I think also there's more, the phone is collecting more information deeper beyond just you know steps and sleep that, that it had before around location and social connections and how many phone calls you're doing, how much time you are on, on TikTok and on your phone on different apps and finding ways to, to safely and, and in way that secures privacy, but still bring that to bear in, in helping people understand that you've been on the phone for, for seven straight hours and how that affected your, your sleep. And, in a, in a way that people can receive will be important. So integrating these new, new domains that are, we know really important for mental health, but how it affects us broadly and individually, we still don't know. I think it'll be really interesting to see how that how that plays out. And really, yeah, Apple has a lot of not control, but but influence on how this will play out in this next phase, given the the just the the size and the 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 reach of that company. I mean, well, that's the conundrum, right? If it's like if if young people's mental health has been plummeting since phones came out and now the the most valuable company uh, that's ever existed is like we think we figured it out. We're gonna, <laughs> we're going to help you have these tools and now your watch can detect how much light you get every day and we'll fold that in and we'll see how much TikTok you do on your phone that you pay us for. Like all these different things again, like it is very complicated and it'll be incredible to see. I'm sure in a month, they've already got enormous data that's hopefully both aggregated and, and anonymous, and you can't be identified by the combination of location and time spent and, and all these different things. But that's also something we've never had before that quickly, that easily, and, and at that at that scope. Um, so I hope yeah. it becomes useful on the macro and the micro level at the same time. Like, it is complicated on just an enormous uh, yeah, num- definitely. number of, of levels. I think the micro level 
I hope and I think will come first. I think people having the insights in their own life and knowing, you know, details that that there's no way a phone or a watch can get yet about like personal interactions or sure. things on their schedule or and then put that together with some of the the mobile data. I think people we can do right now and and do in a in a useful way right now that I, I think will be really people can make changes in their life well before we'll get to the the macro level. Hopefully we can make progress there too, but I think that'll be a little bit down the line. It helps. I mean, I, I think, I believe I've seen some science that just the act of self-reflection can be helpful. But like you said, you've got to be in the right headspace, which who who can know to, to receive it in some way, just like receiving good news or bad news, like you can be received differently. My wife talks about, she realized that she's a screenwriter and when she gets notes from the studio, she likes to do it when she's on the treadmill so that she's already got the good chemicals floating and it yes. just works and she just is less stressed about it. On the other That's hand, I, I decided to make my life's work working on mental health and climate change and, and, and <laughs> public health and things like that. And I have, uh, you know, very candidly, like, uh, um, it's been evident to my family, but you know, I'm, I'm trying to be more open about sharing, like not dealing with it. Well, like just, it's incredibly stressful. Obviously I'm, I'm wildly privileged and I just have a podcast and newsletter and do this consulting stuff. But at the same time, not just, yeah, well, th that's very kind of you. Thank you. But the point is it's all relative when we're talking about physicians and, and, and frontline workers and all these different things. But yes, I try to keep in mind that my experience is my own, but I have been so stressed because of it all. And knowing that I've had back issues, so I haven't been able to run as much as I would like in or any exercise in the past year. And over a week, like I can deal with it over a year, it's not great on top of everything else and other things that families are dealing with in this and this. And I've had some very stressful time recently. And I really started, I started my first, it hasn't gone towards depression, it has gone towards anxiety and stress and, you know, hearts feeling tight and things like that. It's all been checked out started Prozac for the first time, which again, like I'm aware of it enough seeing all this recent science to know that like sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. There's 20 different versions who can know and there's going to be side effects and you just yeah. kind of got to go on that ride, but also do the low hanging, relatively low hanging fruit, which is like, okay, I do need to prioritize doing the exercise. I do need to prioritize sleep where I can. And I'm going to have to sacrifice some things to do that. And that's okay. But yeah. I do hope that the interaction, like you're saying, all the data that's coming in, hopefully it does help folks on the micro level. Because again, it took me 40 years to have any sense of self-awareness about my life. Yeah. So hopefully, especially young people get that sooner. I can't imagine having that sort of knowledge about myself at 19 or 20 or something like that. Yeah. And especially in this sort of emerging field where there is no right answer or, or we 100%. don't know the best way to, 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 to use all this data. And and everyone's sort of integrating it for themselves. But yes, hopefully in the end, it's a good thing. Well, it's the version of like control what you can control, right? Where you're saying like, look, I'm, I'm pumped to be in this field because the brain and the gut, you know, it's the metaphor, you pull a string on the sweater. We just keep finding like different sweaters that don't even look like sweaters. Yeah. Like it's, 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 it's the wild west. <laughs> like you said, right. no one's finding a new aorta anytime soon, right? If you are suffering from anxiety and stress and depression, you can't do a lot to control that side of it, right? Like folks like yeah. yourself are doing the work. What you can control is hopefully the things that you've, you notice with self-reflection that can help you feel better. And maybe some of those are a little yeah. more broadly applicable. I think one of the other things we can't control is just just the bad news that that's out there. You talked about climate change, you know, Gaza and Israel and Ukraine, and th that's different than most of human history, where if there was a war going on 3,000 
8,000 miles from, we would have no idea. No one knows if the climate's changing, but I think the, the, these are all critically important issues and things to deal with, but as individuals, we, we may have little control over it and not the people shouldn't think about and work on them. But, but if we find that, I think this also interacts with the, with media and social media that, that negative stories tend to rise to the top and get more attention because of all kinds of, you know, biases and, and, and tendencies that we have as individuals. So really being conscious of how that's affecting you. And if, if you're, you are someone who's affected by, by that, then, you know, limiting the time trying to find, you know, there is a lot of positive news out there that, that, that's buried and trying to bring that in an equal measure can be important. Again, some people are not affected by this and, and it's, it's, helpful to know everything out there other people aren't so understanding yourself and and if you are affected by that the negativity both on a local scale that can sometimes happen on tiktok or instagram but also at a more um news you know we're coming into another election cycle then then knowing that and 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 limiting your exposure to to some of the negative stuff especially the stuff we can't control i feel like there's 70 other things um and and 70 other places i want to go with this so we might have to have a version two if you ever are interested in coming back i did want to ask one last thing before i ask sort of the last three things i ask everybody and then i promise uh we would love for you to go out and go back to solving depression (laughs) why do you do this work. So this is a question I really like asking people, but it's actually sort of a two-parter because it depends on which word you emphasize here, which is why do you do this work? Why do you feel like you have to do this work? And why do you feel like you have to do this work? Does that make sense? Why does this have to be you? And why do you have to do this? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, really good and, and um, thought-provoking questions. I think I guess for me, I, it's it's what I naturally think about. I. I have depression myself, uh, depression in my family, and uh, I've had close friends I've lost to, to suicide. And and I naturally, profoundly and emotionally affected by this. I think also I, I always curious on, on why people behave or think or act the way that they do and how how different people respond to, to you know, similar uh, situations or triggers and, and both, both from the you know environmental perspective and in in how people respond, but also how that's changing our biology and and affects me in a different way that affects you. So, so this is you know what I would be thinking about even if no one was paying me to do it. And and you know I came up with the whole ideas on what we what I would do with the with the submarine crew and 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 ways we would assess their their mental health and how they're uh, reacting to not having light and. And the stress of their own situation. So I feel really lucky in that I've gotten, I, I get to spend my days doing things that I would naturally do, and hopefully in a way that that can help us understand each other better, and ultimately hopefully help people. I, I don't know which part of the the. I question. think you nailed both of it. You did a really nice okay. job walking that line. I mean, okay, thanks. You are very intimately, personally affected by this in in, in the most literal way. But like you said, you're just interested in not in nonetheless you know it's it it is seems to have you know consumed your thinking and you're lucky that someone's paying you for it right it's like uh being a baseball player it's like it's great get to go out and play a game every day yeah at the same time and i'm sure there's in any field wonderful people who who are contributing to them who who aren't directly exposed to these things but you you 
bring a, a, you know a personal experience to this and that that probably matters for someone who's really looking at this both in the long view but trying to understand what the latest thing is because you understand it so well thank you yeah I, I hope so and 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 yeah I think informing both my own personal experiences and hearing other people's what they're going through and their experiences is really important and grounding what I do and the work and yeah understanding how it's affecting people but also making sure that we're staying we're we're asking questions that really do have a chance of, of impacting people's lives. Well, that's awesome. Okay. I'm going to get you out of here. Let me ask the last couple questions I ask everybody and then you can go. Does that sound good? Yeah, that sounds good. All right. When was the first time in your life when you realized you or a group of your pals, whatever it might be, had the power of change or the power to affect change in some way? And some people answer with something from childhood or adulthood or whatever it might be. When was the first time you looked up and realized like, oh shit, look what we can do. Look what I did. That's a good question. I think, um, and, and feelings about all these things change when, depending on one of the things about depression and certainly my depression, but broadly is, is not thinking that you're not making a change or making negative changes. So I think it's relevant. I, I, yeah, I don't, I'm, struggling to think of the first time, but I've been really happy or, or gratified in some way more recently with this. Um, we talked about these, this physician training physician population and some of the recent data shows that, that we're making progress there, that, that the residents starting now are, are 25% less likely to get depressed, get less depressed wow. and anxious than one starting, you know, 17 years ago. And a lot of that is driven by, progress by, you know, they're working about eight hours less a week than they were before and um, sleeping more and when they get depressed, getting more treatment. So this is certainly not my work, or but but a broad community of, of researchers studying this and, and the residents themselves prioritizing the right things and institutions changing policies. But it's heartening in a, in a broad sense, you know, we're, we're Depression is is more common and worse now than it was in the general population twenty years ago. So it's heartening to see positive news and and that when we do focus intensely on a specific problem and identify some of the root causes in this case working long hours and not sleeping enough and really target them that we can make progress. It's still depression is way too high in this population, but we've made progress and there's a pathway to make even more progress. So that really made me feel that our work can make a difference and really help people on the ground. So that's heartening and hopefully we can do that more broadly with the younger population, the adolescents that we talked about earlier, that we can as a field, do the same thing and, and, and all the other people struggling. So, uh, so that wasn't the first, or maybe not the first time it happened, but a recent one that, sure. that in my old age now, w- what I can still remember. Yeah. I mean, it's fading quick, entire separate conversation. That was awesome. Well, um, you, you have, you have drastically contributed to this and, and to see actual measurable changes is, is, is pretty incredible. And, and obviously is it's at scale. I mean, because it's not just those folks who are being helped. Again, they are getting into a profession to help more people. Um, so there's really an exponential effect to that whole thing. Who is someone in your life that has positively impacted your work in the past six months? A lot of different people. I just came from a meeting on the prevention of depression. And so that's really, you know, on, on top of my mind, there is a, there's a researcher in Australia called Helen Christensen, who just hearing about the amazing work that they've done there in the school populations, uh, a little bit in this digital mental health area, 
but really, uh, and, and in a way that's affected their, that, that they've gotten policies through in government to improve things, has informed some of the work that we're doing. And um, again, gives hope that like, the chances of making change in at a at a large scale at, at the scale of a country is is really impressive. So yeah, that that was heartening to see, and I think it really influenced my work. Again, I'm influenced by what what I uh, what I experienced in the last couple of weeks. There's amazing people doing amazing work all over the place, and and it, it's great to see. And and for me, it's important to to focus on those positive things too. Um, cause you know, sometimes I tend to think about the negative things and more. So, so that was one and seeing, um, Helen talk about her work was really enlightening. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Last one. What is a book you have read this year that has either changed your mind on a topic you haven't considered before, or is actually, or I guess maybe opened your mind to a topic you hadn't considered before, or has uh, changed your mind on, on something else in all of your free time. And we put a whole list up on bookshop and listeners. Really love this. David Epstein on the sort of range. Range, yes. Yeah. Yes. Range. I think that and 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 um was is a really good book and and influence how much that helps dot certainly in sports, but also in thinking and in in science and sure. and how bring especially now how much a, a generalist can can help and and has influenced me to try to try to read more broadly and to to take in interesting things. Um across uh fields um yeah a, a few other ones i found just for my own um reading a lot of non-fiction i used to and and uh sort of high level fiction is in the last couple of years i found challenging and i end up reading mostly popular fiction so like jack reacher and things like that uh-huh. and so that's been most of my reading in the last like six months is Great. reading like one of those like a week and I find that really relaxing. So Great. less high-minded stuff coming out of it, but but it's it's how I sort of wind down. Yeah, no, I got to turn turn it all off. And it's again, it's like literally the same fantasy over and over again or uh or same thing. I've been blowing through the um uh, Patrick O'Brien 20 there's 20 novels about a sea captain uh, during the Napoleonic Wars, a British sea captain and his best friend who's the surgeon. I don't understand half of them uh, because the, talking about sales and and all of these things, who can know? But it is one of the most profound relationships over 20 novels and like 40 years uh, in, in literature. Uh, people compare it to, it's like what um, like Kirk and Spock would be if they could be. Okay. Um, it's really beautiful. There's some great historical stuff and it just really doesn't ask a lot of you on the, on the cognitive sense, you know, it's really great. They're, they're what that movie master and commander were, uh, were based mm. on with Russell okay. Crowe from like okay. 10 years ago. Can't recommend them. Nice. Enough. Okay. I was looking for a new one to move on, move on to. So. Don't be put off by like the density of the nautical stuff. You can ignore mm-hmm. the book of that. In fact, they, he eventually just makes fun of his surgeon friend for like, 10 books in not understanding any of it at any point. He's like, how, how (laughs) you've sailed around the world three times. How do you not know how to get into a boat? Which is great. (laughs) I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, it's the same thing. I recently, a friend was like, I've got this dark sci-fi book for you. I was like, no, thank, no, thank you. Like, can't, can't do it right now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a place for that. that yeah, yeah. Great. But yeah, I'm so happy for you. No, thank you. This has been really fantastic. Where can our listeners follow your uh, your team's work uh, should they choose to? 
we have a, a, a website where all the new work is, uh, they can Google my name and, and get to it. I can, I can, I can share the website with you. I think that's the best place. I'm on Twitter, um, Great. for under, uh, again, my name's Sri John Sen. I'm not always up to date on that, but I try to keep things up there. Um, but yeah, those are, those are the main places. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I know I kept you quite a bit extra here. Um, I really appreciate it. This is, again, I feel like we could we could keep going on and on about it. And there's a million things we didn't get into. So maybe at some point. Thank yeah. you for your time. Thank you for this work you're doing. It is so important. Thank you so much. I I, I really appreciate having a chance to talk to you and I really enjoyed the conversation. Oh, well, um, I, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And that is it. Important Not Important is hosted by me, Quinn Emmett. It is produced by Willow Beck. It is edited by Anthony Luciani, and the music is by Tim Blaine. You can read our critically acclaimed newsletter and get notified about new podcast conversations at importantnotimportant.com. In fact, there you can also find fantastic t-shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, and other things. You can send us feedback. I'm on threads at Quinn Emmett or at important.imp. I'm also on LinkedIn. We're not really doing Twitter anymore. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, you can also go to importantnotimportant.com. Thank you for listening and thanks for giving a shit.